Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. Our scripture reading uh, this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And if you are uh, using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 1003. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. This is the very Word of God. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father in heaven, how good it is to have Your Word, to have that pure spiritual milk by which we grow up in our salvation. Father God, we pray now that You would grant us Your grace to hear Your voice and to receive Your Word and to let it dwell in our hearts richly that it might bring forth fruit abundantly to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the end of chapter 4 this morning, we remember that in the first part of this chapter, we were given two commands. We were commanded first, in the very first verse of chapter 4, we were commanded to fear. He writes, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Then in verse 11, he, he gives us another command where he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. As we've seen, the the rest that he is talking about is is God's eternal rest in the coming kingdom of God. Rest in, in his perfect shalom when he will put right all that has been put wrong. When he will undo the curse and make his blessings flow far as it is found. That is the, the coming rest, the inheritance that is, it is ours. And, and the author is calling us to, to fear missing that, to, to strive to enter into that. It's not the sort of commands that we are used to hearing in the evangelical church today. In fact, many believe that, that such commands are anti-grace, that, that if you are striving or if you are fearing, you don't get it, you don't understand grace, that somehow you are out of step with the gospel. But hopefully we have seen over the course of the last few weeks that the author of Hebrews is in no way out of step with the gospel. That his commands to fear and his commands to strive are actually gospel commands. For he is not calling upon us to fear that we haven't done enough. And worse, he's he's not calling on us to fear that Jesus hasn't done enough. He's not calling on us to to doubt that, that we will achieve salvation on that day despite our best efforts. But rather, he is calling us to fear coming to that day apart from Christ. 
He said, He is your only hope. Fear drifting from Him. Fear uh, being apart from Him. Cling to the crucified, for He is your Savior. And when He tells us to strive, it's the same thing. He's not telling us to strive to earn what has already been earned for us. But rather, He is, he is telling us to strive to cling to our Savior. Strive to hold on to Him who is our hope of glory. All of that comes explicitly clear here at the end of the chapter. It's sort of been implied up to this point, but now it becomes explicit that, that the striving and the fearing that we are being called to is a striving and a fearing that leads us straight to Christ. For notice what he says here in verse 14. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. The fear is that we would drift from our confession. The striving is to hold fast to our confession. And what is that confession? What is the the confession that we are being called to hold fast to? It is the confession of Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest. So let's think just momentarily what that means. What does it mean to confess Jesus, the Son of God? It's interesting that he, that he puts those two names together here uh, at this point. As he, as he points us back to our confession of faith, he, he points us back to our faith in the one who is Jesus, the Son of God. You'll remember that at the very beginning of the book, at the uh, very beginning of, of chapter 1, he told us that God has now spoken through His Son. That previously God spoke through the prophets, but now He has spoken through His Son. And He tells us who that Son is. He tells us that that Son is the unique, eternal Son of God. Notice how He describes Him. He is the heir of all things, the creator of the world, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is the Son, the eternal Son. He is God, fully God, equal with Him in every way. This is the Son who, John tells us, became flesh, who became the man, Jesus. Jesus of of Nazareth, a, a small town in ancient Israel. And so here, by by referring to our confession as focusing on Jesus, the Son of God, He reminds us that the object of our faith, the object of our confession, is the God-man. The eternal Son of God become flesh. He is the Redeemer of God's elect, even as we confess this morning using the language of our catechism. Jesus, the Son of God, of God. And, and not only does this tell us that, that He is God and man fully in one person in two natures, but it, it tells us something of why He came. Why did God, why did the eternal Son of God leave heaven to become man? Why did He take to Himself a human nature? We, we find our answer in His name, Jesus. Remember what the angel said when when he was commanding Joseph to give him this name. He said, you will call him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. That's the mission. 
He comes to save us from our sins. He he comes to rescue us who are under God's curse. That is why He is called a priest. He is a priest that, that fulfills all that the Old Testament priesthood pointed to. Remember, when God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, when He, when he brought them to Mount Sinai, when he, when he gave them the law, even as He gave them the law, He also gave them the priesthood. For He knew that coming under this law would bring curse. Because in their flesh, they could not keep it. And with breaking the law comes consequences. The the wages of sin is death. And so God, even from the very beginning, even as He gives them the law, He gives them the priesthood because it is only through the, the intercession of the priesthood, it is only through the ministry of the priesthood and the sacrifices that they will offer according to God's Word that a sinful people can dwell in the presence of a holy God and not be consumed. It was the priesthood that made it safe for the people to be the covenant of God, the covenant people of God. It was the the priesthood that made them safe for for God to dwell in their midst. But of course, that priesthood only foreshadowed, it only was a picture of what was really necessary. We will see as we continue through this book and as we we continue our our study of of Hebrews that the author is going to tell us that, that the blood of bulls and goats can't ultimately satisfy the wrath of God. It can't ultimately cover our sins. It is a picture of what is necessary, but we need a better sacrifice. And that is the sacrifice that the better priest comes to offer. Really, that's, that's what it means when he, he tells us that he is a high priest and a great high priest. The high priest is the one who, who offered the sacrifice once a year on the Day of Atonement for the, for the whole people and who brought that sacrifice into the very presence of God, the, the only time in the year when, when anyone would enter into His throne room. But we now have a great high priest. We now have a, a better high priest. No high priest in the Old Testament was ever called great. Jesus is the great high priest. He is the better high priest. He is the one who fulfills all that the high priest's role promised, but could not ultimately deliver. For he is the one who enters in to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice. So we heard in our assurance of pardon this morning, we have been ransomed not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of our Savior. He offers Himself. This is His his greatness. His his greatness consists first in the fact that that He is presently our High Priest. That could not be said of of the Old Testament priests. Why? Because they had died. They themselves were under the the curse. They themselves were, were subject to death. And so they had to be replaced one after another. There had to be a series of, of high priests. And every time they, they died, it was a reminder that their ministry was impermanent. Their, their ministry couldn't fully accomplish what it promised. But Jesus is presently our high priest. For though He died, He rose again. And He is now a priest by virtue of His indestructible life. 
For He has been raised and He is alive. We have a high priest who will never die and who will never need to be replaced. He is a priest forever. And He is a priest forever in heaven at the right hand of the majesty of high. Notice what it says. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. It's a, it's a reference to His ascension. That this one who rose again didn't just simply rise again to continue here on earth, but He rose again to ascend to the right hand of the Father where we are told He sat down. And why did He sit down? He, he sat down because His work was complete. The offerings of the Old Testament priest had to be offered again and again and again because they were only a shadow But we are told that Jesus offers Himself once and for all time. He offers Himself once because His sacrifice is effectual. He accomplishes that which was promised. And so He is our living high priest in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And we are told that He is sympathetic with us. We might think that sitting at the right hand of the Father would would make Him unconcerned or, or, or distant. But it is not so with our High Priest, for He entered into... He did not consider his his position of privilege a thing to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself. He, He emptied himself of his privilege and he entered into our suffering. He entered into our misery that He might bring us out of it. That's what the the language of of sympathy means. Think of what we mean when we say that someone is is sympathetic. When someone is sympathetic, we we mean that they they feel what we feel. They they share our our pain. Maybe they, they have suffered the same kind of loss. If you have lost a parent, or if you have lost a child, or or a spouse, someone who has suffered a similar loss is is sympathetic. They they know your pain in a way that those who have not experienced the same thing do not. If you struggle with anxiety, or if you you struggle with anger, or you struggle with fear, or you, you struggle with lust, or greed, or whatever the sin is that besets you, the one who has felt those same temptations, the one who has felt the pull of those, those same uh, enticements, they know your struggle. They are sympathetic. And we are told that Jesus is sympathetic because He entered fully into our humanity. He entered fully in. He did not spare Himself any of the weaknesses or infirmities that are, that are common to us as human beings. But He took to Himself real flesh and He entered into the same world that we live in. He, he, he lived in this present evil age. He lived in the brokenness. He knew the pressures and the struggles and the, uh, the sorrows of this life. But when the author tells us that he was sympathetic, he means more than simply that he can feel what we're feeling. Yes, that is true and that is, that is wonderful. But there's more implied because the word that the author uses means not only that he can feel what we feel, but it means that he can offer help. He can offer help. You see, Jesus didn't enter in 
to our suffering simply so that He could feel it with us. But He entered into our suffering so that He could lead us out, back into peace. You see, that's the significant, the significance of that last little phrase in verse 15. We are told that uh, He is able to sympathize with our weakness because in every respect He has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It is sometimes thought that that last phrase would actually reduce His ability to sympathize. If, if He never gave in, He doesn't really know what it's like to be weak. That in and of itself is somewhat silly. C.S. Lewis has, has pointed out that it is the one who resists temptation who feels its full force. If you give in after five minutes, you don't really know the full force of temptation. If you resist for an hour, you know something more of its power. If you resist for a lifetime, only you have felt the full force of that temptation. Jesus knew the full force of temptation But more than that, He is able to help us in our need because He resisted. He was without sin. And so therefore, not only has He felt the full temptation, but He is actually able to help us because He is the Lamb without blemish or spot. If Jesus had sinned, if Jesus had had given in, then He would have been like all the other priests. He would have needed a priest to intercede for Him. But because He stood firm, because He was without sin, He is able to help us in our weakness. He is able to provide us the the mercy and the grace that we need. For His sacrifice is accepted as the sacrifice which covers our sins and which pays in full the debt that we owe as those who have rebelled against God. And so this is the one in whom we believe. He is the object of our confession. We confess faith in Him as our Savior, as the eternal Son of God who has become man that He might live under the law with us but keep the law for us that He might take the curse of our sins in our place and give to us the blessing that only He truly deserves. This is our confession. And the author of Hebrews is calling on us to to hold fast to this confession. So what does that mean? What does it mean to hold fast? to this confession. Well, by nature, a, a confession is, is something that we believe. So we are to continue believing. We are to stand firm in hope. We are, we are to, to believe this. And to believe it means, first of all, to confess it with our mouths. To, to profess it to be, to be true. But of course, it, it means more than this. Holding fast to our confession isn't simply gathering together on on Sunday morning to to confess it with our lips, but it is to believe it in our hearts. To believe that this is true. To believe this is true for us. To believe that Jesus is our great high priest. To believe that, that He now sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. To believe that in Him 
Our inheritance is secure, that we have been ransomed. And that we now have a place in the coming kingdom of God. It it is so easy for us to doubt. Because we do not yet see it. That's why we sang that song this morning where we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. The author of Hebrews told us this earlier in in the letter. We, We don't yet see it. But we see Him We see Him resurrected. We see Him victorious. We see Him seated at the right hand of the Father. And we know that He will not fail to give to us all that has been promised. We are to believe this in our hearts. And the heart is to be the wellspring of our life. You see, when He calls on us to hold fast to our confession... He's actually calling us to run the race that has been marked out for us as believers. He is is calling on us to to walk in the footsteps of faith. He he is calling on us to to live as if this were true. To live as, as if He is truly our Savior and as if in Him our eternity is secure. And in Him we are heirs of the coming kingdom. You see, Satan will come and he will play on your fears and he will play on your anxieties. He will will whisper that the costs of obedience are simply too high or that the the joys of sin are are too great to be renounced. But the author of Hebrews is calling us not to be deceived but to live as people who truly believe that Jesus is our great high priest. To live as if He is who He says He is. To live as the one who has offered Himself once and for all time, that we who were under condemnation might instead know blessing. But how do we do that? How do we hold fast to this confession? Especially in those those times of of trial. Especially in those times of of temptation. What's exactly what the author tells us here? Look again at verse 16. How do we hold fast to our confession? How do we live as the people of Christ? How do we live as, as becomes His followers in this present evil age? We do it by drawing near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, in ourselves, we cannot hold fast. In ourselves, we do not have the strength to to walk in the footsteps of faith. In ourselves, we, we cannot overcome the, uh, the deceptive attacks of, of Satan. And so we must again and again and again draw near to God. Draw near to His throne of grace to receive the help that we need. As Christians, our lives must be built and upon a foundation of constant prayer. 
See, when the Apostle tells us to pray without ceasing, he is not giving us something that we might do to impress God with our devotion. I think that's the way that we sometimes think about it. Well, if I could just get my devotions right, if I could just have my quiet time regularly, then God would see me and He would be impressed. Then I could prove to Him how how devoted I really am and then He would bless me. We turn the gospel on its head when we think that way. The Apostle does not call us to pray so that we can prove our greatness. He calls us to pray because He knows we are not great. And Jesus is. He is the great high priest. He is the one that we need. And we pray because we need Him. We pray because we need His help in our time of need. We pray because He is the one who can strengthen us to stand firm. And yet, how often do we endeavor to live the Christian life without? Because we do not ask. God has given us means of grace by which we can receive the help that we need. Let us make use of them. Let us make use of them Regularly, A prayer for grace is not something that we offer once a year or once a month or even once a week. It's not even something that we offer once a day. I suggested to you earlier a pattern of prayer that is, I think, beneficial to us all. And it's a pattern that I want to encourage you to consider even yet again. It is a pattern that shapes your entire day. That in the morning when you rise, you pray for grace. You pray for grace to to get through the morning. You you pray that, that Lord, make haste to help me even, even this morning as I seek to do that which You have given me to do. And then as you break for lunch, as you you come to that natural breaking point in your day, and as you thank Him for the food that He has provided, you ask for more than just food, but you, you ask for the grace for the afternoon. Lord, help me. Help me do this afternoon what you have given me to do. Give me eyes to see those whom you have put around me. Give me a will to to love them well. And give me the strength to do uh, those good things which you give me opportunity to do. And then in the evening, again, as you you have that natural break, as you you break for for yet another meal to, to sustain your physical body, sustain also your spirit, By praying for the grace that you're going to need for the evening. These hours of prayer are not not a burdensome discipline. But rather they are a way to approach the throne of grace and to ask for the help that we need in our time of need. How foolish must we be to neglect such prayer How foolish must I be to to go through my days and to to not regularly be asking the, the omnipotent God, the Maker of heaven and earth, who loved us enough to give His Son for all that we will need in the Son's name. Let us boldly approach the throne of grace. And that's really the last point I have for you this morning. Let us approach His throne with confidence with boldness 
knowing that it is His good pleasure to give us all that we need, knowing that we don't, we don't have to earn it. It has already been offered as a free gift. We don't have to be worthy. In fact, we go precisely because we are not worthy. We go precisely because we are a mess. We go precisely because we are in need. And in our messiness, in our brokenness, in our failing, in our falling short, we go before the Father in the name of the Son. And we ask for the help that we will need. And we can ask for it knowing that it will be given. Because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And because such a great help is offered to us by such a great priest. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we, we rejoice in Your goodness to us. Father, help us to see Jesus. Help us to see Him as our great High Priest. Help us to remember that, that He has offered Himself once and for all time and now sits at Your right hand making intercession for us. Help us to believe that, that He not only entered into our sorrows, but that He entered into them that He might lead us out of them. That He is our sympathetic priest who delights to lead us out of bondage into His wonderful light. Father God, help us to see Him, to believe in Him, to, to confess Him, to cling to Him, and to walk in obedience to Him, to the praise of Your glorious grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.